good to be here. I'm satisfied to be here with you. Truly satisfied in my spirit. Thankful for the opportunity um, to teach tonight. Um, make sure you're paying attention to your bulletin. There's some things in there um, that we'll want to pay attention to. We're starting our new series tonight in the book of Philippians. Um, then in October, we'll be doing our series called Entrust, and we'll have uh, various men teaching in the month of October. Excited about that. We also have a church picnic coming up on Saturday, October the 7th, so just kind of get that on your calendars, and we'll look forward to being together. So we're in Philippians chapter 1. If you remember earlier in the year, we did the first half of the verse and kind of introduced our series of foundations, and we allowed that passage to kind of shape how we wanted our learning to be absorbed. If you remember, Paul said that we want our love to abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Our learning is not just learning for learning's sake, but to grow in our ability to love one another. We're going to be kind of in the second half of chapter 1 tonight, but in particular, we're going to be in verses 27 through 30. I did some of this context work in our sermon the first week in January. So if you need that, you're welcome to go back and listen to it. Just a bit of an overview, if you will. But Philippi was a satellite city of Rome. Its architecture, its entertainment, its government structure, the military their language, their sporting events, and even their worship followed Roman culture. Philippi was a worthy representation of Rome. How did it become a satellite city? How did it become worthy of Rome? Did Philippi try to, as a city, live up to Romans' standards and then by achieving that particular enough of this standard then become a satellite city? They be, they, they were actively involved in pursuing being Roman and they reached a certain qualified standard which qualified them as a Roman colony? Actually, that's not the way it happened. Philippi didn't earn its status as a Roman colony by copying it. Philippi was given its status as a Roman colony and then lived up to it. Hence, Philippi took on the image of Rome It became worthy of Rome. If people lived in Rome or visited Rome and then would go on to Philippi, they would easily make the connections between the two cities. They would enter the small city of Philippi and they would experience its food, they would worship, 
They would look at the architecture, the arts and the cultural events and their sports. And they would say, man, it almost feels like we're in Rome. This feels just like Rome. Well, in his letter to the Philippian church, Paul, through various ways, regularly draws upon Philippi as a smaller city patterned after a larger one. A smaller kingdom mimicking a bigger kingdom. And his, his intentional parallel analogy was meant to provide a tangible example for Philippians as citizens of heaven. A smaller community patterned after a larger one. A smaller kingdom mimicking a larger kingdom. Throughout his letter, Paul is exhorting the Philippians to become such a community, a church family that was so unified around the gospel of Jesus Christ that when people entered and experienced their community, they would say, man, it almost feels like I'm in the kingdom of God. A people whose manner of life was worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This representative community isn't new with Paul. This idea of being a community that represents the character of the Lord and blessing the nations around is not new. This is the way it has always been since the beginning, and my hope is that we have seen this since we started our series in January, Genesis, and then into Hebrews, and then back into Genesis, and then into the book of James and Romans, we should have been seeing this reality played out in themes over and over and over. True, have you caught it? This idea that we're called to be a people who represent God and bless the people around us and each other with His presence. So from the first chapter in Genesis, we see that it's God's plan to use his people to bless the world. And then even after the fall in Genesis chapter 12, he calls Abraham and his plan is reinstated. God's plan is to use his people to build his kingdom and bless the world. Then even in his letter to the Romans, we saw Paul say to them, That his whole job, his mission as an apostle, was to bring about the obedience of faith faith for the sake of Christ's name among the nations. His people, obeying the Lord, being a community that blesses the nations around them. So now in his letter church family, to the Philippians, he is saying the same thing. He wants them to be a community that is obeying the Lord with joy, even in the midst of their difficulty. A people 
belonging to God, obeying him, and blessing the nations around them. For the sake of the name of Christ among the nations. We've seen this all throughout Scripture. So we're in Philippians 1, and starting in verse 13, Paul gives the Philippians an update about how he has been doing exactly what he is going to be charging them to do throughout the rest of his letter while he is chained to a prison guard in Rome. He's living out the reality of his heavenly citizenship in spite of, or actually because of, his circumstances. The information that Paul is giving the Philippians is not theoretical. It's tried and it's true, and he's actually been living it out in his own life. He's living out the gospel amid his circumstances. Again, chained to a prison guard. We know that the Philippians are really concerned about him because they send a guy named Epaphroditus to go visit Paul and to take him a gift financially so that he can, back um, in Paul's time, you had to care for inmates. It wasn't like it is now where the government feeds them. If their family didn't feed them or their friends didn't feed them, they didn't eat. And so the church in Philippi sends gifts through Epaphroditus to Paul. They're obviously concerned about him. Paul sends back this letter to them saying, I'm doing really well. They maybe are scratching their heads. He's in prison, chained to a guard. How's he doing so well? Because his fate is tied to the success of the gospel. That's how he's doing so good. The advance of the gospel is Paul's advance. Because he's all about the kingdom of Christ moving forward, regardless of where he is, as long as the kingdom of Christ is moving forward, Paul is advancing. He's succeeding. He's thriving as the gospel thrives and Christ's kingdom advances. And this is not despite his circumstances. He says, it's because of them. So in verses 12 through 14, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the entire or the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. The brothers are looking at me and they're seeing me preach the gospel in my circumstances and they're fired up to teach the gospel in their lesser circumstances. Guys, the kingdom of God is moving forward. I'm doing great. A guy named Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a Russian dissident who wrote strongly against the communists in the latter half of the 20th century. 
he was sometimes imprisoned for his beliefs. And he wrote this. The only way to survive in prison is to abandon all expectations in this world and live for the next. This is exactly what we see Paul living in his prison sentence. In verses 12 all the way through 26, Paul is recounting his hardship, but he's doing so in light of the gospel advancing. And like he'll later say to the Corinthians, this light and momentary trouble is preparing for us a glory inexpressible. He's seeing his circumstances through the light of the gospel advancing and he's doing genuinely well. While his circumstances by all external appearances are very poor. His future hope in Christ is certain. His present has purpose even in his suffering and so he rejoices at the success of the gospel his circumstances as he sees them are only aiding in the gospel moving forward so he's not complaining it actually strengthens his commitment to further rejoicing so in verse 18, one, in verse 18 of chapter 1, he says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in present tense or in truth, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Why is Paul rejoicing? Because his value, his treasure is in the gospel of Christ moving forward. So then he'll go on to say in verses 19 through 26, man, I long to be with the Lord. He can take me anytime he wants. Death has no victory. I'm okay with that. I'll go and be with the Lord. If I stay with you, I'll be fruitful too. Going, staying, doesn't matter to me. I'm good as long as the gospel is advancing. And this is the very mindset that he encourages the Philippians to lay hold of and to mature in. In other words, hey, my church that I love, love the gospel, advance in it, grow in it, take joy in its benefit. It's happening in my life. This isn't theoretical. It's true. It's happening all around me. Now I'm charging you with it. So by the time we get to verse 27, Paul turns his attention now to encouraging and exhorting the Philippians to live in like manner, the manner in which he has been living. And his overarching concern for this church is with their joy in the advance of the gospel. And the primary focus of his letter is to encourage the Philippians as a church to stand firm together 
in the truth of the gospel with joy, with joy in the face of opposition. We've been spending quite a bit of time, even last week, memorizing and defining the gospel. In a little bit, we're going to talk about that together and even redefine it together. Or remind ourselves of the definition. But the primary focus, again, of Paul's letter is to encourage this church to stand together against whatever opposition they face. And in this standing together, this one-spiritedness, this one-mindedness, when anybody walks into their community, Paul's hope is that they will experience the kingdom of God in the, king, in the small community of Philippians. I've been praying for us that we will see that this letter has direct application to us as a church family. While this letter was written by Paul to the Philippians, in a much larger scale it is written by God for us, Vine and Branch. Nobody has to talk us into the fact that we live in a dark time. Many of you have heard that after um, Tucker Carlson left Fox, that he is reading his Bible all the way through for the very first time. He's seeing what so many others are also seeing, and he says this, There are forces much bigger than human political forces that are behind the evil that we are seeing today. He, like again many others, are recognizing there is something very strange afoot. Any of us who have been around for any long period, any period of time would know this, this is different. This is a new hard that our country is seeing. And we can complain about this or be intimidated and fearful. That is a real temptation. Or we can realize that this is where we shine and the gospel advances and love the advance of the gospel more than we love the advance of our country. This is the time we have been born into for the gospel of Jesus Christ, vine and branch, to move forward. We have been, younger ones, you have been given these parents Church, we sit in this community doing what we are doing for the sake of Christ. And if we truly value His kingdom 
and his success moving forward, then actually in the midst of the darkest time in our country, our joy will actually increase. Are you with me? Because we are excited about the possibility and the energy of the gospel moving forward, our energies join gospel advancement and our joy increases. This is the time that God has chosen because he knows his lights shine greatest in darkness and church. This has always been true. It's proven itself historically over and over and over. We do not have to wonder by either history or by God's word that his lights shine brightest in darkness. And hear me, but like Paul and like the Philippians, we absolutely need partnership in order to be joyful and stable in this task. You with me? You cannot do this alone. You can't. Paul opens this book with gratitude for partnership with the Philippians. I need you to do what I'm doing. I receive your love and your gifts for me. It keeps me going. Now let me send my love and gifts back to you. And so now he says to the Philippians and God to us, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. I'm in verse 27. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightful in anything By your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of your, of their destruction, but of your salvation that is from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is such a powerful verse for us, church. You see it? Let your life be, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Stand firm, one spirit, one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything. It's going to amp it up because they're going to see that when, you, when what you say is true, their destruction becomes more real. But it's also a sign that what God said is true and it's for your salvation and your confidence to increase. And it's from God. 
four things I want to us to pull from these verses. The first one is right in the beginning. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. He uses this word only, meaning this one thing alone. In other words, let this one thing be true of you, that your life would be worthy of the gospel. If there's one thing on your tombstone at the end of your life, may it be that your life was worthy of the gospel. If you have t-shirts made to say, this is what I'm about, may your t-shirt say, may I be worthy of the gospel. If you choose a new last name, may it be written across your back, I belong to God the Father. May this one thing alone be yours, that your life would be worthy of the good news of Jesus. I'm happy to be teaching. My spirit is full, church. He says worthy. This is not a word of deserving or earning. It's a word of measurement or balance of scales. You could say in keeping with. Remember when I opened, we were talking about the Philippian colony. Didn't earn its reputation as Rome, it was given it and then it lived into it. It was worthy as it grew to mimic the motherland. So Paul is saying, let your life keep in line with the gospel. May your life be in balance with the gospel in which you have been placed you are God's son. You are his daughter. Live like it. Sinclair Ferguson uses an example. When he was a kid, his mother used to give him money to go down to the local butcher shop that was near their house. At that butcher shop, the butcher had one of those old scales where he had a series of little small weights. He would put the meat on one side and then he would pick up the weights and place them on the other this one weighs five pounds, three pounds, two pounds, one and a half pounds. And he would stack them over there until the weights and the meat weighed the same. And it would tell him what the meat weighed. And Sinclair Ferguson said, that's the manner in which Paul is using this word worthy. It's in balance. Your life should be in balance with the gospel. It should mimic it. It should weigh the same. You're not earning it. It's been giving. It's been given to you. Now live like it. Paul uses the word gospel, and we've been talking it, about it. He actually uses the word gospel more densely in Philippians than any other letter. Per 100 words, Paul says the word gospel more than he ever does in any other book. Why is that? Because he knows that the Philippian church needs the truth of it to run deep into their hearts and their lives. 
if they are going to be a community joined together in unity, facing insurmountable odds with joy and holiness. The gospel shapes our life, our lips, and our lives. We are to live as joyful citizens of a greater kingdom. What is this gospel that Paul is hammering on? Do you remember? Deserving wrath. Can you say it with me? Deserving wrath. Justified by grace. Recounted righteous. Rejoicing in God. Dead to sin. Activated to righteousness. It's the gospel. We deserve wrath. We've been justified by faith. God has counted His righteousness to us. That causes us to rejoice. We're dead to sin and we're alive, activated to righteousness. And true submission, church, to that reality is the only thing that can bring a community like the Philippians or ours into unity. That good news and focusing on that good news as a church will keep us out of the weeds and keep us from nitpicking each other over stupid secondary theological issues. I shouldn't call them stupid. Less than, you get, my, you get what I'm saying, right? Somebody can take that out of the tape. Don't put that online. Don't transcript that. That was ad lib. You with me though? Paul does not call the church to make an ideology or a political party stance or a secondary theological issue the main thing. He calls us to make the gospel the main thing. And so the Bible says, let your only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. How do we do that? Well, thankfully, right after Paul provides three really practical ways for us to let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And the first one, he says, is standing firm in one spirit with one mind. The second thing he says is to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. And the third thing he tells us is not to be frightened in anything by our opponents. Let's unpack those a little bit. Standing firm in one spirit with one mind is actually a military term. So he's going to flip-flop from a military term to an athletic term. But here he's going with this military standing firm. It actually means to hold your ground. Don't budge from your post. Do not retreat. Don't back up. The flag is ahead of you. Do not turn around. 
we must not disavow our loyalty to Jesus, but we must instead faithfully stand firm in the face of opposition. It's what he's calling the Philippians to do. It's what we're called to do. That means when conversations are being had and it's really looking like we'll be unpopular to speak up the truth, do not turn around. Stand your ground. Speak truth lovingly and boldly. Everybody has a truth. We might as well be espousing God's. Yeah? Just because they speak louder and more often does not make them more true. Do not be intimidated, church. So in Philippians 4.1, Paul says to them, Therefore, my brothers, as he gets ready to close the book, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved, in one spirit. One spirit, one mind. He's telling us we have to do this together. We are not alone Not only does Paul say we find our power and strength through our warrior king, Jesus, but we are his. He loves us. He has purchased us. He has poured his love into our holy, into our, he has poured his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom he has placed within us to empower us. And we also stand with each other. We can't miss this theme of partnership for the advance of the gospel. Again, this is how the letter opens. Philippians is not just an epistle of joy. It is a letter about fearlessly advancing the gospel with joy, working together through partnership and hardship. So he says, here's how you let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Stand firm in one spirit and one mind. Church, that means we need to be together. Secondly, he says, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is where this goes from military to athletic. It means Striving means contending or laboring. The Greek word is sin athleo. And I only mention that because the word athletic is actually in there. Athleo. It's teamwork. Paul is calling us as a church to stand as a team. Many commentaries, and Ray Vanderlaan is included in this. We saw this in these videos we were watching as a small group last season. But many commentators make a connection not only to athletics, but specifically to the gladiatorial games when they would release animals and the gladiators would actually fight against a common foe. And the gladiators would get together in a circle, typically four of them, two of them back to back, and then two over here back to back. And they would put their backs to each other, but they would face outward against a common 
opponent. And this is the language that Paul is using. Fight like a team. At the end of the letter, and Ray Vanderlaan talks about this, he says, how ridiculous is it if you've got the onslaught of opposition and wild animals coming to you and you bump into your gladiator buddy over here and you start arguing with this guy when you're in the midst of danger. And he applies this to these two ladies at the end of the book and saying, stop this foolishness fighting here when you've got opponents out there. Knock it off. Stand together focused on the gospel of Christ. Strive side by side together. We are to work together in hardship. I have tried a hundred times in my mind to see if I could word this appropriately to, to help you entertain the hope that this has given me. Let me try. I have often read these passages as if it is up to me to fight against evil. Part of the reason we get discouraged and intimidated by what's going on in our world is we're thinking we've got to fight these forces by ourselves and it's so overwhelming and huge. Who could possibly stand up to this flow of evil? We don't stand Alone, church, we stand together. And it doesn't have to be this big colossal thing. I'm telling you, we're doing it here now. It's happening. This morning at men's study, it's happening. We don't have to whip the world. You know what we need to do? Be unified as a team working together. We're doing it. And we trust that what the Lord is doing here has this superpower emanating out of here. And He does the work for us. You with me? That gave me tons of hope because it's doable. We're not whipping the world. We're just loving one another intentionally and diligently and striving to stay on the same page, focused, joyfully pursuing the advancement of the gospel of Christ. And God the Father whips the world. Jesus our King establishes His kingdom. Yeah? Church, there's a lot of bad going on out there. We got a lot of good going on in here. We are doing this together. Let's do more of it. It's happening. It is happening here. I can't tell you how many times I hear people eating, fellowshipping, talking, going out with each other, double dating, taking care of each other's kids. We are advancing the gospel doing that. And not for nothing, we're growing. People are coming and they're staying. Do you know why? At least they're telling me this feels a little bit like the kingdom. Let's keep it up, church. I am so inspired by you. It's true. One commentator says, there is nothing like being part of a local church on mission together. No civic group, no team, no organization is like the church. The fellowship of the gospel in 
the power of God. And in that mindset, we jump into verse 28, not frightened in anything by your opponents. Can you imagine what it would be like not to be frightened in anything in our culture? Amid everything going on in our world, envision what it would be like not to be intimidated. You know how we accomplish that? Together. Standing firm together in the truths provided by the gospel, the promise of God. We were talking about this this morning. The promise of God is what? I will use my people to establish my kingdom. And we are them. Amen? Is it true? It is true. By the way, um, you can say that. Sometimes when I'm teaching, if you're so inspired, you can say, it's true. You can do that. That's right. I love that my mom is first. So good. Whoever the opponents were to the Philippians, they were not to be intimidated by them. Church family, we don't have to be intimidated. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God. He wins. It's a sure win. You know where truth is found. You don't have to know all of it. You know where truth is found. You know who you are. You know whose you are. And you know what the outcome is. Therefore, do not be frightened. Church. Do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. Despite the frenzied condition of the world, we can stand firm, confident, peaceful, unshaken, and full of joy as we stand together in one mind, in one spirit. Living out our calling as citizens of another kingdom, a greater kingdom. So let's read this verse. I'll read it. You can just silently that we read to begin. 2 Corinthians. This goes so well with this passage. Paul again says, But thanks be to God who in Christ always, always leads us in triumphal procession and through us, listen to this church, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ. That's true. Thanks, Ian. It is true. We're the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. The one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many peddlers of God's word, 
but as men of sincerity, commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Somebody say it's true. I'm going to wrap up. My family and I watched once again one of my favorite movies, and I did it because I kept thinking about it watching or studying Philippians. It's called The Miracle. It was done a while ago, 2004. It's a hockey movie. It's a true life story. How many of you have seen it? The Miracle. Okay, it's a good movie. It's a true life story about the 1980 Olympic hockey team. And so in the movie, Kurt Russell play, plays Herb Brooks, who is this brilliant hockey coach that's a bit eccentric with a tenacious goal to beat the Russian Olympic hockey team who has been dominating the hockey um, sport for like 16 years, including like beating the NHL All-Stars at that time, like 10 to 2, dominating. But to do this, Coach Brooks must recruit a specific group of college-age hockey players to specific and intended roles. And so they have a week-long thing where they're supposed to go through where they, they pick all these college students and they're supposed to do this for a week and they're supposed to be a whole team of people who helps them to pick. After the first two hours of this week-long event, he gives the list and says, these are my players. And they're like, wait a minute, there's a committee. We're supposed to do this together. And he says, no, this is my team. This is who I'm going with. And they said, well, we, we want some say. And he goes, too bad. You hired me to do a job. These are the guys I need to do the job. And his assistant coach goes, but Herb, some of the best players in the country aren't on this list. And he says, I'm not looking for the best players, Craig. I'm looking for the right ones. He needed this exact group of men, young men, to accomplish his this job. And in order to beat the villainous Soviets, and you would have known the Cold War, all this stuff is going on. Remember, this is 1980. We weren't on good terms with Russia. This is, by the way, the same time Rocky IV came out with Drago, right? Because we've got to defeat the Russians. But there, this is a real-life story. Rocky was kind of close, but <laughs> we'll go there. But this is a true-life story, and this became more of a hockey game. This became about America defeating the Russians, but Brooks realizes that these young players have to own three fundamental realities. They have to know what is at stake. They have to know who they are representing. And they absolutely have to play together as a team. They're not going to make it if they don't. And to try to get this point throughout their training, Coach Brooks is regularly asking his young players, by the way, I know this is, this is actually true because his players, I've watched all kinds of stuff on this movie because I like it, but his players would say he would do this all the time. He would always ask, who, wh what's your name? Well, you know my name. Mike Ruzioni. Who do you play for? University of Boston. He was always doing that. So he would ask a player, what's your name? And they would go along with the, name, the game and say his name. Who do you play for? University of Minnesota. He was always doing this. They're not getting it. 
And the fact that they didn't understand what's at stake and who they were representing and the importance of team was fleshed out in a game, a prelim game, with Norway. They should have swamped these guys and they tied them. And Coach Brooks is not happy. So while the other team leaves the ice, he gets them on the line and they start skating back and forth. The ice guy comes out. You guys need to leave hours. They're still skating. He shuts the lights off, the ice rink guy. Come on, we're going home. We're not going home. You boys keep skating, skating. They're falling down. They're vomiting on the ice. The assistant coach is going, Herb, enough. And he's like, Craig, blow the whistle. Send him again. The doctor comes out on the ice. Herb, these guys are going to get hurt. You've got to stop this nonsense. Send him again. Send him again. Guys down on the ice, pouring sweat, throwing up. Finally... One of the players, Mike Ruzioni, the captain of the team, finally screams out, Mike Ruzioni, Boston, Massachusetts. Herb Brooks says, who do you play for? And he says, I play for the United States of America. And Herb Brooks says, that'll be all, gentlemen. And he walks off the ice. It was at that moment that one of the team, and in particular, the leader gets it, and he gets this. He understands what's at stake. He understands who he's representing and the importance of his team. While they were doing this interaction, Herb Brooks keeps saying to them, the name on the front of your jersey is a lot more important than the name on the back. It says USA on the front and their last name on the back. The name on the front of the jersey is far more important that the name on the back. The team began to get what was at stake. Who they were representing. And the importance of team. One final scene. At the end of the movie. They're in the final rounds of the medal, the medal rounds. They have, and they're playing the Russians. If they beat them. The next team is an easier one, and they'll get the gold. They are facing this undefeated, seemingly unbeatable Russians. These men literally had been playing as adults, most of them for 10 to 12 years. These college-age kids have been playing together for seven months. But amazingly, the young U.S. hockey team is up by one in the final minutes of the game. The Russians are throwing everything. Their arsenal is, is in full force against this young American team. It's a frenzy of activity. You know, it's counting down. And Herb Brooks is behind the bench and he's saying to his players, Play your game. Play your game. Play your game. What's he saying? Don't be intimidated. Just keep doing your job doesn't matter how frenzied it is. We didn't get here by responding to their frenzy. Just keep playing your game. Do your job. I tell you that story, church, because I think it captures really well our application points. Here's the first one. We must realize who we're representing. The name on the front of the jersey is a lot more important than the name on the back. At one point in time in the movie, Herb Brooks says to his team, he has one little guy go up hot shot and he scores a goal. 
And he says, that's not going to fly in the Olympics. And he says, gentlemen, if you think you can win on talent, you don't have enough talent to win on talent alone. You need your team. Realize who you are representing. We are on the winning team, church. We belong to the kingdom of God. Literally, we cannot fail. It's true. His name is on our jersey. Secondly, remember your team. You will fail on your own. The world looks insurmountable by yourself. But together, we have what it takes to defeat the evils of our current circumstances together. We do and we will. Remember your team. And lastly, play your game. Game. Do your job joyfully. We cannot fail. Remember who you're representing. Lean on your team. Do your job joyfully. We can't fail. We all have gifts that we bring to this community to help one another stand and strive. We do. What is one way you're using your gifts? Multiply it. What's way you're not one way you're not using your gifts and grow it? That's it. It's that simple. Do your job. Play your game. What's something you're doing really well? Rejoice in it and do it. What's one thing you know you could be doing and you're not? Grow in it and enjoy the growth. Realize who you're representing. Remember your team. Play your game. Father, help us by your power as you are helping us to remember who we are Remember our team and what we're called to do. And at the end of the day, to rest. Because although we get to participate, it's your job to finish. And you will do what you say. We trust you. Help us to trust you more. King Jesus our fearless leader. We pray in your name. Amen.